Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. We are lucky today to have Brian Zahn with us, you guys. Brian, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Now, Brian, you're a full-time pastor, and then your website calls you an occasional author and a would-be mountaineer. Is the would-be mountaineer, like, legit? Like, you are a mountain climber? I am a mountain climber, uh, but not like my youngest son, who is a very accomplished mountaineer, does big walls and that sort of stuff. Okay. So since since I know what a full-on mountaineer is, I'm hesitant to call myself <laughs> that. You're not doing any Tom Cruise like hanging from, you know, crevice walls or anything. No, but but I have I have a son that does that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's always been amazing to me. Well, uh for those that um that aren't familiar, Brian's the founder and the lead pastor of Word of Life Church. Um it's a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, Brian, you and your wife, Perry, you founded that church in 1981. Is that right? 35 years ago. Yeah. How about that? You've written a bunch of books, um, including one we'll probably touch on a good deal today, Water to Wine. Um, you've written A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Unconditional, um, The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness. And I know you're working on others, but like I mentioned, for some, uh, they might already know a bit about you, but I'd love to give folks new to the conversation um, maybe a little bit of your background so that they can track with the journey you've been on. Um, and you have written a lot about this in your, in your latest book, Water to Wine, and, and we'll sort of work our way through that. Um, but do I understand correctly that you came into Christianity as a teenager and just sort of jumped right into hosting the early <laughs> Christian music scene? I did. Yeah, I was kind of a Christian music promoter at age 17. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's exactly what happened. I'm, um, just so we don't keep people in suspense, I'm 57 because people were trying to figure out just how old is this guy. Okay, I'm 57. <laughs> and they, they want to know which artist you started with. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. I was a huge Zeppelin fan. <laughs> I still am. And uh, an even huger Dylan fan. Uh, but Jesus came crashing into my life uh, when I was 15 years old. And, and that's the only way to describe it. I mean, even now I'm trying to process how that happened, that Jesus just, I, that's, that's the word I use, crashed into my life. And really overnight, I went from being the school Zeppelin freak to the school Jesus freak. And I was, and, and people back then, they knew me as Fry. Nobody called me Pastor Brian. Okay. <laughs> I was Fry, which uh, Richard Flanagan gave me that nickname in grade school in tribute of my great temper. Really? <laughs> I had fiery temper, and he called me Fry. <laughs> and people would say to me, Fry? This is after I had my dramatic encounter with Jesus, you know, maybe a few months had gone by, and they said, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I'd say, man, I can't believe it either. But it happened. And so I was leading Bible studies in the high school gym every morning before school and leading Bible studies at night. And then I got involved with this Christian coffee house called the Catacombs, which was basically a music venue. We brought in people like, well, we brought in lots of local Christian artists. But I mean, from time to time, we'd have in Paul Clark, Keith Green, Love Song, Sweet Comfort Band, stuff like that. Okay. And so, and, and this was... This venue was kind of, it was a 
Christian coffeehouse music venue, quasi-church. And the fact of the matter is, I've been doing the work of a pastor since I was 17. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't say that's a good idea. I don't recommend that. That's certainly no pattern. But it's it's my story. It's what happened. Okay. And and this thing turned into an official church in November of 1981 when I was 22. And like I said, my wife, we were had been married for a year at that point. And uh, so my roots are the Jesus movement. I was, you know, one of the Jesus freaks. Okay. You were a Jesus freak before DC Talk, huh? Oh, yeah. Way <laughs> before that. Yeah. We go back to the, yeah, the real Jesus freaks of the 70s. And... Um, and was Perry a Jesus freak along with you there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Perry and I, we've just done life together. I mean, just right there together. Okay. And, uh, I mean, we met at the catacombs when I was 17 and she was 16. And okay. we've so been she, together she, since. She knew what she was getting into. Oh, yeah. She was as much Jesus freak as me. So, you know, we've just been on the journey together. Oh, cool. And uh, so we turned into an official church of sorts, I guess. By the time I was 22, and the church, you know, it stayed small for about seven years, and then it got really big, really fast over a period of about another seven years. And what happened was the Jesus movement sort of funneled us into the charismatic renewal, and I, I described that that was that was good until it wasn't. Okay. And but there was a vibrancy and a a fresh move of the spirit a sense of, you know, the supernatural capacities of the Spirit of God that was good and healthy. But as it then began to funnel us into things like prosperity gospel, religious right, and it just happens over a very long period of time until I wake up one day, I'm 45 years old, this is like 2004, and I think, well, how did I get here? Hmm. This isn't really what I signed up for. It's like I got on the wrong bus somewhere and just ended up, how did I get here? Hmm. And this led to a profound crisis because I had been for at least four years increasingly dissatisfied with the Christianity that I knew. Now, I don't want to be misheard here. I wasn't doubting my faith. It wasn't a crisis of faith in that sense. I wasn't disenchanted with Jesus. Far from it. What was happening was I just had come to the point where I believed that the Jesus that had so captured me and captured my life and my imagination when I was a teenager deserved a better Christianity than I was seeing and experiencing in my 40s. And so this led to a a, a kind of a very desperate bid. I began the first 22 days of 2004 in prayer and fasting. I I got down to 130 pounds. I didn't do anything for 22 days but pray, sleep at night, and preach at the appointed times. That's all I I mean, that's not an exaggeration. I didn't do anything but that. Wow. And it 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 sort of thrust me like I, I felt like I sometimes I describe it like this. It was like I'd been shot out of a cannon and I I arrived in a different world. Hmm. I mean that sounds that sounds pretty extreme. I mean for the average person it's like, you know, I spent a month like without eating and praying, you know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't not only would I never recommend anybody do that. I hope to God I never do it again. <laughs> there was nothing pleasant about it. 
Okay. Uh, it's that's just a tribute to how desperate it was, and I'm not being coy. I mean, I'm very serious when I say I don't recommend anybody try to imitate that. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling the story. It's what happened. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, I, I wouldn't want to do it again. Yeah. But what happened was through through some fairly remarkable circumstances, things began to change. Some of our staff left, and they probably needed to leave. And then most notably, I began to, I just thought, well, I've got to get back to the roots. And so I started reading a lot of the church fathers. I returned to an interest in philosophy and good literature. And I was reading a lot of that, reading nothing that was contemporary, because I'd become so disappointed with what I knew uh, in contemporary Christian thought and writing. Now, that was my fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. Yeah. But... But just the journey I had been on through charismatic faith movement, you know, that kind of stuff, I just was cut off from the really good stuff. Well, Brian, before you get to the good stuff, and I know I know you want to get into that, I'm, I'm interested because you did talk about the fact that you had these um, sort of uneasy feelings early, you know, prior to this, where, you know, your faith might have felt like it was coming up short a little bit. Are you able to describe those feelings any more specifically that because I wonder if there's other people that maybe are waiting in that kind of muddy water right now. Yeah. And, and just remember, Jeff, uh, everything was great. The church was big and growing. I didn't have any problem in my marriage, didn't have any problem with the staff. I mean, it was sort of in, in, the, in the very Americanized way of looking at things. It would be a, a ministerial dream. You know, everything was what you think you want it to be. Okay. And yet I felt like, are we really distinct from the wider American culture? Or are we just the assumed cultural values of America with a Jesus fish slapped on it? Hmm. And I, I mean, I really began to sense that. I thought, I, I remember the sense of the counterculture when I first encountered Jesus. And now I didn't feel countercultural at all. I felt very comfortable and accommodated with wider American culture. And I felt like a lot of it was shallow and trite. And and I knew that if I felt this way, that it wasn't that wasn't Jesus. Hmm. That Jesus was always radical. Jesus was always uh, all consuming, demanding that we really do live radically other lives. Hmm. And there was a part of me that didn't want to admit I was having these thoughts because I had enough sense to know that if I really tried to find out what was wrong and rectify the situation, that I was taking a great risk. Yeah, you kind of see the you can feel the uh, undergirdings of your framework kind of rattle if you if you poke down in those areas, can't you? Well, there's that you know cute little axiom, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. And by an American metric of numbers and money, it wasn't broke. Mm-hmm. But I had enough integrity to know, to know that something had to change. I just couldn't. I just couldn't be content with this because, honestly, Jeff, I never signed up for a career. I mean, I didn't start, you know, leading the catacombs when I was seventeen because I thought, hmm, this will be an interesting career opportunity. <laughs> I did, but I did because I was just completely captured by Jesus. And I want to maintain that kind of integrity and that kind of passion. Hmm. But that required that I make changes in my 40s. Well, and one of the things I've heard you talk, you talk about sort of a, 
you know, a turning point for you in that 2004 year. Is 2004 the same year that the that the um, that you were praying and fasting? Yeah, everything happened that okay. year. Because I, I've heard you tell another a story with that where you're somehow with Vice President Dick Cheney at an event and you start getting those uneasy feelings kind of start to seep out a little bit. Is that, that was also that everything happened that year? It was right. all yeah. It seemed like like some life altering event happened about every week in 2004. That was a crazy <laughs> year, and it was a difficult year. It wasn't easy. I can look back and and tell the stories in there. To, to to someone else, they may sound either exciting or funny if I tell them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But but really, I was just you know tumbling down a mountain. It felt like you know. <laughs> Yeah, and the only and the only reason I bring up the Dick Cheney thing is along to your point of by the American metrics, it seemed like you had all the success. So I thought it was very interesting that here you are. Well, let me tell that because I don't want to just tease people with it and then yeah. Yeah. band it. <laughs> uh, this was probably September two thousand four. So this okay. is you know an election time. Dick Cheney's doing a political rally in our city, St. Joseph. And uh, I was asked to give the invocation. Hmm. Now, you know, I'm not completely daft. I know why they want me. I have the biggest church in town. I have influence among, you know, evangelicals. And and so my presence there would be some sort of tacit endorsement. So I I was in the process of rethinking everything. But still, you know, I didn't know. And I kind of, I didn't immediately say I would do it. And then finally said, okay, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So I show up at the Civic Arena and they take me backstage and I'm with the secret service and all of that. And I'm not there very long for, I just realized, you know, I'm just a pawn in somebody's political game. Hmm. I had to, to even get into the arena. There was a lot of protesters out there because this is during the Iraqi war and all of that. And a lot of protests going on. I had to run that gauntlet to get in. (laughs) And, and then I was back there and I just, I just, okay, I, I see what's happening. Then we're out on the stage and I look out there and there's, you know, probably 4,000 people and probably half of them are my church. Okay. And, uh, uh, I sat on that stage and I just thought, what am I doing here? Hmm. Uh, I just felt like Jesus was saying, Brian, Brian, why are you politicizing me? Hmm. And, um, so when it came time to pray, I got up and I stood at the podium and I didn't say anything for a little bit. I was actually praying, you know, silently. And I know they were thinking, come on, preacher, get on with it, get on with it. We got a show to run here. Hmm. And what I was really saying was, Jesus, forgive me. I'll never do anything like this again. And then what <laughs> I did was pray a very innocuous prayer that couldn't be, you know, that couldn't be judged as an endorsement. It was just kind of one of these vague, innocuous prayers. And I didn't stay for the end of it. I then left immediately. And, uh, and so, so it wasn't even so much that you were so you weren't against that guy, but it was just you were just like it was just the actual nature of being politicized that you could feel was becoming. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I just um, and 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 when I was driving home from that event. I was at a stoplight, and the car in front of me had a bumper sticker. I think it said, oh, it said something like, uh, "I love Jesus." It's his followers I can't stand, or something like that. <laughs> I got that exactly right. Yeah. But I, but I was sitting right behind him, and I was so tempted. I wanted to get out of the car, walk up there, and just say, "I know. I'm sorry. I apologize. Please forgive us. You know, I mean, I looked at that and didn't feel angry. I felt remorseful because I thought there's too much truth in it. Yeah. Hmm. And so when I say I left that arena, 
I mean, literally, I left the civic arena where this, you know, Bush Cheney rally was happening. And I left that whole arena of, of politicized faith. I just left it, which which, you know, to people that are still stuck in a dualism of left, right, elephant versus donkey, all of that. They're going to think, oh, you just became a Democrat. No, <laughs> simply left a politicized faith. Hmm. And my politics today can be summed up pretty accurately as saying Jesus is Lord and he gave us his politics in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I can promise you that doesn't fit neatly in any of these uh, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican grid work. But that's one of the things that happened. Everything seemed to happen in 2004. So now you're a political freak, too, at that point. <laughs> uh, well, I, I had I had been caught up in the religious right. Well, I was just saying now, you, you didn't, now you're saying you don't fit in either category. So you're just oh, sort of, no, no, yeah. I way don't. Yeah. I'm a follower of the Lamb. And and if people, you know, if, if they don't get me, if they want to say, well, you're just a Democrat or a liberal, I said, brother, I'm a revolutionary Christian. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, let's, I know, and, you know, when you talk about 2004, um, you know, and you really do expand quite a bit on this in, in your book, Water to Wine. Um, you know, one of the early quotations in the book you, you had that from Jesus actually saying the scripture was this idea that no one who has tasted fine aged wine prefers unaged wine. And as somebody myself, who's a complete amateur wine guy, like, you know, if I go to a restaurant, it's like, what's your cheapest red wine? I'll take the one right above that, you know, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, when I do have a fine red wine or fine wine, you know, it, as soon as you taste it, you're like, right. I don't know how much this costs, but this stuff is good. And, um, I just thought that was a fascinating, I don't know how I missed that kind of thing in scripture, but like the fact that Jesus said, had even tried to explain this to people, but you know, you're, you're transitioning towards a, as you, you know, your understanding of your faith is sort of transitioning a little bit. And I imagine it wasn't always easy for others to figure out what was going on. So, you know, what does that look like when you're pastor of a mega church and you start to taste this fine wine and, you know, you can't really go back to the cheap stuff of what you've been doing and you're walking away from the politics as you knew it, but you're a revolutionary follower of Jesus. What does that look like for the people around you? Well, for at least half of them, it looked like I was um, betraying what they understood as the Christian faith. And so if you really are fully invested in a kind of, and I, and I, I don't think we were egregious in this realm, but we certainly would have lined up with kind of a general prosperity gospel, certainly religious right kind of faith, and your pastor begins to not just question, but challenge that and push back against it and begin to preach sermons to show where it's not faithful to following Jesus, then you are thrown into a moment of cognitive dissonance. You can either say, okay, I too am willing to rethink these things that have been you know, pretty uh, fundamental to my Christian faith, or at least my understanding of Christian faith, or you can just say, well, he's, he's, he's uh, compromised. He's denying the faith. He's walking away from Jesus. He's backsliding. He's, mm. you know, whatever. And, and probably half of the people did that. And so we went through a period of losing lots of people from our church. And it doesn't matter if you have a large church or not. I, uh, when people leave, it's painful. Mm. And for Perry and I, these were people... See, it's it's a it's a losing proposition to be a pastor if what you're most interested in is personal happiness, <laughs> mm -hmm. because new people joining your church 
which means strangers joining your church, never offsets the pain of people you come to know and love and call friends leaving your church. Hmm. And so we went through a period of time where we lost a lot of people. And a lot of them were, they weren't just, you know, names or numbers or, no, these were people we knew and had done life with. Some of them we'd been good friends for 20 years or more. Mm. And some of them, you know, we had baptized them and then baptized their children. Mm. Uh, let me just, let me just throw this in. We did have the phenomenon and this sort of spoke to me and, and this happened quite a bit of peers, people our age in their 40s, 50s, leaving the church and their adult children who had grown up in our church staying and saying, Mom and Dad, you can leave if you want, but this is saving my Christian faith. Hmm. You know, if, if I had to stay on the path we were on, I, I wasn't going to probably stick with Christianity. So we had that happen. But back to what we were talking about, the pain of going through it. I mean, we're in a town of, I mean, our official population is 72,000, so it's not that big. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means if you lose fifteen hundred people, wow! It means when you go to the grocery store, you see them. Yeah, right. And if you do it just right, you see them in aisles one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> and, and How many times can you avoid eye contact? <laughs> you, you put on a brave face, but it hurts. Mm. And I would say that both Perry and I have come through that, and and we survived, but not unscathed. I'll tell you, I mean, I'm being a little bit vulnerable here. I don't usually do these on podcasts, but you caught me at a good moment, I guess. And I had a, uh, I, I had a meeting. Some, someone called me up, sent me a text. One of our valued friends, church members, and wanted to meet with me mm. last week. And, and we met. And Perry knew I was meeting with this, this man. And we had, it was, you know, he had some things he wanted to talk about. It was a wonderful time. You know, I was mm. able to help him. But when I came back, you know, Perry said, you know, I hate to tell you, Brian, but I just was so afraid. I thought maybe maybe they're going to leave, too. Mm. You know, they've lost that vision. And I said, yeah, I know, Perry. I had the same thoughts go through my mind. I said, we made it. We're okay. We're well today, but we're not unscarred. You know, we went through that. Mm. And yet neither of us for, for a second regret it. Mm. I mean, pain is real. But, but we wouldn't ever have dreamed doing otherwise because the truth is – the richness, the fullness, the vibrancy, the depth of the faith we found today is worth everything. I mean, to go all yeah. Bible on you, it's like the pearl of great price. Hmm. It's it's worth selling all to obtain. Hmm. Wow. So you, those triggers really do kind of hang with you. Um, you know, you had said something in the book. I felt like one member came, or at least one, maybe more, came to you and said something to the effect of, you know, where'd the real Pastor Brian go? Right. And um, that language was very familiar to me, even in my own journey, where people will come and say, "You know what? Ha- we want you to go back to the way you used to be." How did you? How did you learn to respond? You and Perry learned to respond to that kind of charge. You know, like um, what became? I'm sure you had to work through that a little bit. But how did you answer that to people? Well, in that particular case, I was a little bit testy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I just said, "Look, uh, you can say what you want." But don't accuse me of inauthenticity, of not being authentic. Let me say it that way. <laughs> I, uh, I am, you know, risking everything because as much as anything, I want to be my true self. I had read that time, around that time, a little quip from Soren Kierkegaard, 
who said, now by the help of God, I shall become myself. Hmm. And, you know, Jesus talks about saving yourself, your soul. You know, uh, if you if you lose this false life, you can find your true life. And that's what was happening. Because part of what happened is I woke up and I was 45 and I thought, it's like I'm being erased. Mm-hmm. The real Brian Zahn is disappearing. And so it was actually the very opposite. Uh, the real Brian Zahn was finally emerging, was finally, you know, being recovered. Uh, I'd felt like I was in danger. I don't think I'd completely arrived there, but I was in danger of becoming a megachurch caricature. Mm-hmm. And I just did, wasn't interested in that. And so, um, you know, but but how to, how you really deal with that's just in the moment when you kind of spout off at somebody. But you didn't but, strike anybody with a five-pound Bible or anything like no, that. No, there's no violence was involved. <laughs> I, I, it's good that I had moved to a position of nonviolence. Yes, amen. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, but it was it was during this time that I was also learning to pray and to pray well. Okay. And I, there's, I don't think there's any way we could have made it through that time without learning to come into a new depth of prayer where where you could be healed, where you could uh, sit with Jesus over these matters. And uh, I can, I think I can say, Jeff, in honesty, I think I can say um, people that left, I mean, I don't blame them. I mean, we're all on our journey. And if you haven't arrived at a place where you're ready to fundamentally rethink some of the things that you've inherited, then I say, look, this isn't what they signed up for. And if they don't want to stay with us, it hurts to see them go. But I understand they're free to do that. And I guess part of what helps me to have mercy is I could see myself having reacted that way at some point in my past. Yeah. So, so I, you know, what what would my 25 year old or let's make let's say what would my 30 year old self think of my now 57 year old self? You might have been striking the pastor with a Bible, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, so you, you forgive, you continue to love, you understand that it just, it's just not worth it to become the kind of person that nurtures resentment, and so you, mm. you, you forgive, and you have to learn to, you have to do that if you're going to be a pastor, or you'll be ruined. Yeah. You know, one of the things I heard you say, at least in your book, and I think one other interview I've heard you one time, you actually call yourself religious now. And that's not really par for the course, so like Christian leaders, especially those who might be considered a little more progressive than others. So and I think this sort of ties in where you're at with prayer and everything, but what do you usually mean by that when you tell people, yeah, I'm, I'm religious? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's just honesty. I think, th- I, I understand very well, because I used to do it myself, I understand the impulse to say I'm not religious but that impulse is not coming from Jesus. That impulse is coming from Nietzsche and Voltaire. And I just want to say to people, don't back down to Nietzsche and Voltaire. Don't let them <laughs> dictate to you like that. Now, if you say Jesus didn't come to start a religion, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. But I will hasten to add, that's because he already had a religion. Jesus was an observant religious Jew all of his life who had a sacred text who prayed liturgical Jewish prayers, who attended a synagogue weekly, who observed various Jewish rites, including circumcision and keeping kosher, who observed Jewish festivals. I mean, Jesus was the epitome of a religious man. When we are pushing back against religion, what we're typically pushing back against is hypocrisy Hmm. and bad forms of religion and religion as manipulation. But religion is simply the process of formation into a certain faith. So, 
religion is how religion in, by which we mean these practices of a sacred text of prayers of gathering of a calendar things like this this is how you in fact pass on the faith from generation to generation you can't just say, okay, we're going to let every single generation, every individual sort of develop their own experience with Jesus. That won't work. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, if, if, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus today, you can thank the Christian religion for making that possible. Because it's what you call religion that bothered to compose, canonize, collect, and distribute religious texts that we call the Bible and pass on this faith down through the millennia. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of me being honest, and maybe I've thought it through a little better than some, that the impulse to be anti-religious is in fact the uh, tsunami of secularism sweeping over society. And I'm just not going to completely cooperate with that. <laughs> I understand that there's a lot about religion in the form of bad religion that can and must be and should be critiqued. I'm all for that. But just to say, for a Christian to say, I'm not religious, I don't I think it's even disingenuous. I don't well, so do you go to church? Do you do you have a Bible? Do you pray prayers? Do you do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Have you ever done something like that? Do you celebrate Christmas and Easter? And if they answer yes, well then you're religious. Hmm. You know, don't and don't be ashamed of it and don't let radical secularism shame you for it. So hmm. that's where I'm coming from on that. Okay. I mean, I have a lot more I can say. <laughs> well, well, look, it's kind of along those lines as you, you know, you were talking about sort of you felt good about where you were moving into your your prayer life and and what that looked like and maybe drawing on um, on historical uh, resources in that way. And so, and I've heard you describe it more in the terms of contemplation. Um, and you described contemplation as being a way. Um, sort of out of this sort of dualistic thinking you were referencing earlier. Um, and could you just say a little bit more about what healthy contemplation might look like for the, for maybe the everyday person listening? I tend to call it sitting with Jesus. And it's a place in my time of daily prayer. And I have a daily morning liturgy of prayer. It takes about a half an hour. It's what I teach in my prayer school. I know a lot of people are scared to death of that word liturgy. <laughs> liturgy is simply a track of prayer, and everybody has one. If I say, do you pray? Yeah. Well, let me listen to you pray for the next three days. I'll write down your liturgy. I'll say, here, here you go. Here's your liturgy. It's not very good. Can I give you a good one, <laughs> a better one? Um, so in my, there, there's a place right in the middle of my daily liturgy where I have reached the, the end of using words. Um, we use words, we use well-crafted words in prayer, because how we think about God and how we talk about God uh, is what forms us most in uh, our spiritual life. And the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do as a form of managing omnipotence. Rather, the primary purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. And so to that end, I entrust my soul to prayers that are wiser than I am. It's why when it's when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray, he said, all right, when you pray, say, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer, which is what they wanted. This is how rabbis would teach their students how to pray. They would give them prayers that would form them in a proper way. Okay. And so that's what I do in liturgy. But in the middle of the prayer, there's a place where I just call it sitting with Jesus. And this is where words are no longer used. And I simply am acknowledging the presence of Christ 
who now fills all things, the Apostle Paul says. I simply open to that. I acknowledge that, and I sit quietly, wordlessly with Jesus. And I don't have to. I don't expect anything to happen. Nothing needs to happen. I'm sitting with Jesus. That's that. But sometimes things do happen, and either issues or situations, possibly people that are troubling me, may be introduced into the room as I sit with Jesus. And I never, I would never dream of saying, okay, Jesus, here's this problem, here's these people, here's this situation, would you just straighten them out? No, I don't do that. Hmm. I sit with Jesus, and what sometimes happens is I am granted enough grace to see things as they see it. Doesn't mean it's right. In fact, sitting with Jesus in contemplative prayer is really far beyond right and wrong. In other words, it's not situated in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we get that poison fruit and death. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's we're not. I'm not so concerned about who's right and who's wrong. It's how can I love? And if I perceive everyone as an enemy, as I look at them through my own lens of fright and self-interest, it's very difficult for me to love them. Mm-hmm. When I sit with Jesus in a place of peace and perfect love that is in the process of casting out all of these fears, I begin to sometimes perceive the world or me or the situation as they might. And it begins to create the capacity for me to uh, do unto them as I would have them do unto me. You know, that's a very provocative thing that Jesus says, and we kind of tend to just dismiss it. Oh, the golden rule, you know. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's actually a very interesting thing that Jesus calls us to because Jesus is then inviting us to contemplate what it would be like to be another person. Hmm. So what if I were a Muslim immigrant uh, living in America? How would I want people to treat me? And before I can answer that in any serious or substantive way, I have to actually spend a moment imagining, what would it be like if I were a Muslim, mm-hmm. immigrant from wherever, mm-hmm. from Yemen, living in America, first-generation immigrant? What, what would I want? How would I want to be treated? And so then I have to step outside of myself and consider what it would be like to be somebody else. And I think that begins to pave the way for the potential of genuine love, not not a not love as a slogan, not love as just sort of some cheap sentiment, but where we actually are loving our neighbor as ourselves because we mm. contemplated what it would be like to be that person. Now, I do that by sitting with Jesus mm. and him helping me in that process. This is a hard thing to describe, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I hear you talking sort of, I mean, we're you're not talking about total prescriptive things you're talking about creating this space but i also hear you talking about being more comfortable with a little bit of unknowing a little bit of mystery that comes alongside your faith there um and i'm just wondering i think i've read some of your stuff where you talk about the need for mystery in our faith and i don't mean like and that you might have meant more open-ended big theology mystery um but i was sort of attaching that to what you were talking about when we wonder what might be like for other people not necessarily knowing exactly for sure um, I don't know. Have you? Because I, I feel think- like my faith is a tiny little boat in an ocean of mystery, and I'm fine with that. I mean, th- there are the non-negotiables that I confess concerning Christ because I'm a Christian, but that's still just a vessel in a vast ocean of mystery, and I don't have to pretend that all that can be known or we would like to know is represented on my little vessel. 
And so I'm perfectly fine in acknowledging there's so much that remains a mystery. And will it always remain a mystery? That's another mystery. I don't know. Uh, but I'm fine. I mean, part of, the, part of what I would describe as fundamentalism, which is basically a wrongheaded reaction to modernity, is this sort of craven desire to, to pretend that we have all the answers. To, to pretend that we have all the answers. And of course, that's nothing but a pretense. And I think it's usually rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. And once we get beyond that, and we feel like I have enough answers that I can ground my faith and make it through life, but I don't have to pretend to have all the answers, it takes a lot of pressure off of us. Yeah. I know that's, we had um, Pete Enns on a few weeks back, and that was his latest book, Sin of Certainty, that kind of addressed things. But when we start saying what you just described, for a lot of people, the idea is no, the Bible has every answer for every specific question in my life. You know, where should I go to lunch today? It's in there. You know, It doesn't have anything like that. <laughs> right. So, But I'm saying when you say that, uh, for a number of people I know, it's sort of like they just shut it down. We're back to where you were when people are leaving the church and you know, Pastor Brian's backsliding and smacking with a Bible kind of thing. So, um, you know, I, I've I, I want to transition just for a second, if we can, if you're comfortable talking about because we're talking about mystery and being drawn into something, different things. And uh, I noticed this last year, just a few months back, you and Perry decided that you were going to take the the what is it, the way the El Camino Santiago yeah. or something of that nature. Camino de Santiago, yeah, yeah, it's the best thing we've ever done. Well, I'm really interested by this because not too long I had seen the movie The Way a while back and it was a really it's a very poignant movie. And yes. um and so then I kind of saw on social media where where you guys were doing it and I didn't really I mean I didn't follow it completely closely and I wasn't sure what that was about. I'm just sort of wondering, you know, what uh what took you guys there? And maybe even tell us a little bit about what it's about as well. Sure, it started 4 years ago. And I told Perry, I said, I cannot be in America in the run-up to the 2016 election. It just gets too crazy. Now, I did not know it was going to be DEFCON 4 crazy. (laughs) But this is in 2012. I said, we've got to do something different. Around that time, we saw the movie The Way. I'll jump ahead for a second. Every single American we met on the Camino was there because they saw that movie. Really? (laughs) That is how Americans know about it. How about that? And it's a very good movie. I recommend the movie. It's shot, you know, it's it's uh, Martin Sheen and his son, uh, Emilio uh, Estevez. Yeah, yeah. They wrote it, the whole thing. They're believers. It's shot on the Camino. The one thing that you should know about the movie is the movie does not communicate how actually physically demanding this is. That is not part of the storytelling in the movie and it could mislead people. It's harder than it looks. But so anyway, the, the Camino, the Camino de Santiago is a pilgrimage uh, journey route. Okay. Typically, the idea is it starts in Saint Jean Pied de Port, France, and ends in Santiago de Compostela, Spain, 500 miles. And it it, uh, re- it began about 1,200 years ago. Uh, it was probably at its height in about 800 years ago, when 500,000 people a year walking it. Today, about 200,000 walk. And that represents a very serious renaissance that began in the 60s and really took off in the 21st century. In fact, pilgrimages all over the world are increasing. Hmm. And uh, so we decided we were going to take our first sabbatical. We'd never had a a lengthy break at all uh, in 35 years. And we said, okay, we're going to take 
we're going to take off seven Sundays, almost eight weeks, almost two months. And uh, we're going to walk this Camino. We walked it in 40 days. Hmm. And, you know, it's 12 miles a day. And it was hard. It was demanding. I mean, we walked every step of the way. We carried everything you have. I mean, there's that uh, there's that U2 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. Hmm. So what do, you, what do you take on the Camino? All That You Can't Leave Behind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happens is, it happens with everybody. You, you've, you've packed, you've prepared, you're getting ready to fly to wherever you start from, you know, going to start in Paris, hmm. then take a train to Saint-Jean. Um, and you think, okay, I have all that I can't leave behind. And a week later, you think, no, I could leave that behind. <laughs> hmm. And you start really paring down. And, and the beautiful simplicity of you can actually live life a lot simpler than you think. You need far less than you really think. Um, one of the things we loved most about the Camino was the deep, deep sense of camaraderie. Hmm. Uh, I was astounded by how kind everyone was. In fact, I I never had a I never experienced a moment where uh, anyone was unkind to us. I think everyone walking the Camino and they're just from all over the world. I mean, just it's you know just this great melting pot of humanity hmm. from all kinds of nations. And everybody kind of realizes we're all doing something that's pretty difficult. It's pretty hard. Hmm. It's it's over a compressed period of time. So we we're all in this together. We might as well help one another. And so, you know, if you were sitting by the side of the the path, the road, wherever you were, maybe you're tending to your feet because everybody gets blisters. You just do. It doesn't matter. You It just does. You know, you get blisters. Okay. One in a thousand maybe don't, but you get blisters. You know, people will always stop and say, oh, do you need any Band-Aid? you need any Compi? Do you need any gauze? Can I help you? You know, and just the, the kindness of people and the simplicity and how we walked you know, every morning and with, with quietness. And mm. um, I would say the majority of the people, because, you know, because of the proximity, there's quite a few people from Western Europe. Okay. A lot of Germans and French and on it goes. I would say that a lot of them are generally secular. Um, but once they begin the Camino, they recognize that it is a spiritual endeavor. And I never saw anyone that was disrespectful. And so to, toward religion and very early on, like, you know, the first day or two, you know, we'd be in the albergue and somebody would say, OK, there's going to be a pilgrim mass tonight in the local church. And Perry and I had decided we would go to all of those. OK. And, and so we go and, and the first night or two, I thought, well, there'll be it'll be Perry and I and a couple other, you know, very, you know, intentional Christians. No, everybody goes. Hmm. And I, you get to know these people. Some of them have never attended church in their life. They don't have any kind of really formed spiritual belief. And yet they're, they recognize that this is a religious pilgrimage route. It is a spiritual practice. And they're all ready to go to church with us. And hmm. it, it, was, it was beautiful. And I, I, don't, I feel like I'm doing a very poor job of communicating. No, it's okay. But it, it, um, the last day. Well, let me back up. Okay. What I learned, I learned a lot of things. I'm still processing what I learned. Well, I was kind uh, of wondering about that because I just have to imagine on a journey that long on foot that there's going to be moments where, you know, things emerge in your mind or you experience something that might might take be a slow 
a slow emergence in your in your heart or mind um, of significance. So, yeah, I learned that I'm too goal oriented, and I'm I can uh, I. You know, Perry did better than I did in the sense that she remained more present. Mm. Uh, I did okay, but if we stopped, you know, we said, okay, we're going to stop. We're going to visit every church along the way because you go past churches. If it's open, we'll go in. If it's not, we'll just, you know, stand there a moment and acknowledge the presence of this edifice of faith that (laughs) might be a thousand years old, but we'll acknowledge it. Mm. And but inevitably, it was always me that said, okay, let's go. And I look back and I think, what? what was in such a hurry for? Hmm. What was it? You know, what was the point? And well, everybody pretty quickly realizes that the Camino is a metaphor for life. And what you do well on the Camino, you do well in life. What you do poor on the Camino, you do poor in life. It's a way of taking stock of how you're living your life. And so when we finally reached the end, I mean, the last day, you know, we arrived there at the at, at the at the church, and there's a big uh, plaza out in front of this huge cathedral, and there was a there was a German fellow sitting there, and he saw Perry and I arrive, and he he just started clapping for us, and <laughs> just feel good, and yeah, and he asked, you know, where'd you come from? Oh, you know, we started in Saint Jean, carried our stuff all the way. So, oh, very 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 good, very well done. I said, where did you start? He said, I started in uh, Hamburg, Germany. I've been walking for four and a half months. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And uh, then he told us, you know, where the pilgrim office is. And see, all along the way, and if you've seen the movie, you know, you have have your pilgrim passport, your credential, and you get these stamps along the way to prove that you you walked the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And when you arrive at the pilgrim office, it's very formal. They take it very seriously. And they, they look at your passport with all the stamps, and they ask you, why did you walk this? And they, they want to know why you did this. And it's it's all done in Spanish, so it was difficult. I was having trouble understanding everything, but you know, we fumbled our way through. Uh, and then finally, the, the, uh, the officer there in the pilgrim office, he stamps my passport for the last time, and he looks at me, and he said in English, the only time he spoke to me in English, he said, your Camino is finished. Hmm. And Tears came to my eyes. Mm. Now, I thought, oh, I don't want it to be done. Why was, this, why was I in such a hurry? Mm. And now it's done, and that isn't. And But see, that was, Jeff, that's my lesson for me to learn. Why do I rush through life? It'll be done soon enough. Yes, I'm a believer. I believe things continue, but this life itself is precious. Mm. So I want to live each day. I want to be attentive to it. I want to be aware uh, yeah, I've got things to do and books to write and sermons to preach and places to go like everybody else has things to do. But I'm not I'm really trying to learn not to rush hmm. and not be aware and not soak up every moment. Hmm. Um, well, that plays in nicely to your uh, your upcoming book this year, right? Because you were talking. I think the next one is about God's affection for you and you know you don't have anything to fear and it's sort of this like what are you in a rush for there's a love relationship happening here is yeah is that is that a sort of what the new book is going to be about this year yeah sinners in the hands of a loving God and it comes out August 15th uh it's all you know my my part's done now the publishers are doing their part but okay. it releases August 15th sinners in the hands of a loving God and if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards sermon you see what I've done there yeah but really, I'm addressing—I don't ever say this in the book, 
but I'm addressing a lot of the questions that I've received over the years, the yeah buts. And, and so I, I, I don't want to skirt them. I don't want to deal with them uh, on a surface way. I want to substantially, substantively, seriously deal with the questions. What about the fear of God? What about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the cross? Wasn't that God using violence in order to be able to forgive? What about hell? What about the <laughs> revelation? Is Jesus going to come back and kill 100 million people? And so that's what I deal with. Now. Wow. Okay. All right. Um well, Brian, one of the things we um, well, first of all, thanks for sharing that stuff about your about your walk and your journey with Perry. That's um, one of the things that's so beautiful about that to me is the fact that I think you. How many years have you been married? You said 30, 35? coming up on thirty-seven. Okay, thirty-seven years, and and you and your wife are having thirty-six, a, but thirty-seven in May. So, well, that's you know, you guys after that many years still have the type of relationship that you want to take that kind of a journey together. Honestly, we're best friends. We really yeah. were. Yeah, that's really, that's beautiful. Um, But you know, one of the things we do here at Fearless Questions, you know, we're always trying to ask questions. We, you kind of even alluded to it earlier is that it's, you know, love drives out fear, but fear can also drive out love. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to be afraid of the questions. Um, But what are the questions that you wish people were asking more, um, just in your own journey? I would like to see American Christians in the present um, season asking are there ways in which my Christian faith has been compromised by nationalism? In other words, is my worldview as an American in some ways compromising my commitment to Jesus Christ? Hmm. Is pledging allegiance to America in a certain way, in any way, in conflict with my claiming that Jesus is Lord? And I think that's going to lead to a lot of profound rethinking, maybe some disturbing moments. Mm. But I think there's probably nothing that an American Christian can do that's more important right now than to resist uh, Christian faith being completely captured by American nationalism. I think we're in a dangerous time, and I think people need to be asking questions about that. Yeah, I think that's so. That's that's such a good thing to be talking about. I mean, one thing I've you know, this kind of comes back to the beginning where you were talking about the dualistic thinking is that for people to reflect on that, if they're still stuck in dualistic thinking, that can be really challenging to untangle because it feels like to separate anything from nationalism throws away some of the other values they have in life, you know, the people they support and, and, um, have received benefits from and such. And it, you know, it does seem like you have to, um, I don't know. It's a real maturation process that sort of needs to take place to engage those kind of thoughts. But um, yeah, so important. So thank that's a that's a good one. Um, anything else? Any other questions you wish people were asking? Or oh, that that'll be enough. That'll, that'll be a hundred more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if they get done with that one, your book will be out. And it sounds like there's about two hundred seventy-two more more yeah, questions so. you can invite them right. into. So. Well, look, Brian, I, I appreciate your time so much today and um, just sharing your heart and what uh, your journey and how um, just how your faith has developed and your your uh, love for Jesus has um, managed to overcome the uh, the negative sides of religion that you've been able to recapture. Sounds like the beauty of um, healthy religion. And and um, yeah, I just I appreciate what you're up to and, and what you're doing there. So thank you. Yeah, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. All right. I've really enjoyed it. All right, cool. Well, we'll talk soon, Brian, all right? Okay. All right, bye-bye.